Good morning. Trell and Heather, congratulations. Uh, oh, they might have just stepped out saying congratulations to nobody. Probably taking care of the baby, changing diapers. They're getting a rude awakening to that, aren't they? Uh, another baby in this church. Man, this is good stuff. Something in the water I'm hearing. Uh, how's everybody doing today? Good, good. Uh, it's good to be here with all of you. And uh, any, any of you who are first-time guests, just want to especially uh, welcome you here today. We're glad you're here. Uh, for those of you who weren't here last week, um, we are taking a break from our traditional uh, sermon series in the Gospel of Mark. We've been in Mark for a time, and now we have taken a break this last Sunday and also this Sunday, and also next Sunday, to set aside time for uh, a, a special set of messages. Um, the title of this series is Watchmen Never Hold Their Peace. Watchmen Never Hold Their Peace. And uh, this is a two-part series. We started it last week. We're continuing it today. The title of this series is based on a scripture passage in Isaiah, in particular Isaiah 62.6, and this is how it reads. God speaking through Isaiah says, I have set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem, and they shall never hold their peace day or night. You who make mention of the Lord do not keep silent. And we learned last week, and I'm going to just briefly review this, but we learned last week that the watchmen of Israel were entrusted with the duty to sit atop the city walls and to look out for approaching enemies and to look within to see if there was any conflict within the gates of the city. The watchmen stood on the wall and they looked for danger. They looked to see if there was any trouble coming near. And when they saw trouble, they would blow the trumpet and warn the city of danger. And in the spirit of that warning, in the spirit of that of the watchmen of Israel, we too are blowing the trumpet in a sense in these couple of messages in this series. Last week, we're blowing the trumpet on the issue of homosexuality and marriage. That was part one of our study, and that was uh, from last Sunday. If you missed it, I encourage you to listen to it. Um, I, I rarely would, uh, would say that. I, I think that this is a critical message not to miss. And I would like you to, to listen to that if you missed it. Because the issue of homosexuality and marriage is an enormous one in our culture today. And we as Christians, we as spiritual watchmen on the wall, we need to sound the alarm on the issue of homosexuality. But there's a second issue, and there are many others, but the second issue that we're going to look at today is the issue of abortion and life. The issue of abortion and life. And I know this issue is very near and dear to many of our hearts. Um, so we are going to be today... As spiritual watchmen, we are going to be sounding the alarm on the issue of abortion in life. We're going to be looking at the Word of God today, finding out what the Word says about this issue, and responding to it. That is our hope. That is our prayer. And let's pray together right now as we 
go about doing this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we know that You've entrusted to us Your precious Word, Your precious truth. And Father, because You've given this precious truth to us, we know, Lord, that You would like us now to take it to those who don't have it and don't know it, don't understand it. Father, we as Christians, as people who name the name of Christ, who believe in the Word of God, Lord, it is incumbent upon us when we read Your Word and see the sin that is before us, that we call it out, that we sound the alarm, that we blow the trumpet and warn people of this great sin. Father, there are many sins we could cover. There are many sins that in our culture today that uh, we are not not looking into in this series. But today, Lord, we look, at, we look at one. We look at the issue of abortion. We pray Your Spirit would open our hearts as we consider this critical matter. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I have a family member who, in the past, was... Uh, Dialoguing with another family member, and they were uh, dialoguing about uh, who were they, who they were voting for in the election that was going on in that day. And uh, as they were dialoguing about this matter, uh, the one person, one family member, turned to the other and said, "Other than the issue of abortion, why are you voting for this candidate? Other than the issue of abortion, why are you voting for this candidate?" Now, stop and think about that statement for a moment. What does that statement tell you about the person who is making it? Does it tell you anything about them? Anyone at all? And perhaps I didn't get the tone through. You know, maybe we're sitting here going, well, what was the tone of the conversation? The tone was sarcastic. The tone was demeaning. The tone was... Well, you're not all that brilliant now, are you? And so they asked the question, and I'll ask it again, other than the issue of abortion, why are you voting for this candidate? Now, what might that tell you about that person making that statement? They don't really care about abortion. They think it's kind of a non-issue. They think it's kind of off to the side, not essential, not really that important. And so to them, to a person who's saying, well, other than the issue of abortion, why are you voting for this candidate? To them, the issue of abortion is not good justification to to vote for a political candidate. Now, I'm not here today to discuss whether the issue of abortion alone is good reason to vote for a candidate or not. That's not what we're here for. What we are here for is to recognize that that statement... The casting aside of abortion, as if it mattered not. The setting aside of the issue of abortion, as if it had no bearing on your life, no bearing on your decision making, as if it should be relegated to a lower status than others, say, economic reasons to vote for a candidate, is despicable in my mind. It's despicable. The issue of abortion is a critical, critical issue. And God has a lot to say about the issue of the unborn. Who is 
the unborn is a question we're going to be answering today. And what we learn about the unborn, you know, will it affect our politics? I would hope so. I would hope anything we learn about God's truth would affect our politics. But so much more than that, I would like to think that what the Bible says about moral issues would affect the way we act. Would affect the way we show the world the truth of God in love. Now before I go any further, I want to say one thing. Uh, I have little doubt that there might be someone in this audience who's had an abortion. Um, Truth be told, uh, uh, abortion uh, um, among people group in a group of this size would be very, very common. Very, very common. Multiple people. Perhaps even as high as 5-10%, if not more. And I want to say very clearly, uh, all that is said today about this issue, I say it with a heart that grieves over this issue. If, if you've had an abortion, I want you to know very clearly that there is amazing grace and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And that though we are going to say, based on the Word of God, that this issue is a sin, and that this issue needs to be opposed by our Christian community, though we are going to say that and substantiate that, I want you to know that I'm not, in the, in the Word of God, and Jesus Christ is not opposing you, and is not opposing an action you may have taken in your younger days. And so I want you to know that what is said here is said with a heart that breaks. As God breaks for sin, so we break for sin. And if you've had an abortion, I want you to know there's forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And it's okay. It's okay. What is abortion? What is abortion? That's a, that's a good question. We've got to define our terms here. WordNet Dictionary, we quoted it last week out of Princeton University. WordNet Dictionary says, abortion is three, letter, three words here. Termination of pregnancy. It's the termination of pregnancy. I think that's a, a very fair and succinct and accurate definition. Interestingly enough, as I was studying this issue this week, I could not believe what I read in other dictionaries. I could not believe what I read in other dictionaries. Let me show you one such example. The American Heritage Dictionary goes on to add, termination of pregnancy, an expulsion of an embryo or of a fetus that is incapable of survival. This is the first definition given for abortion in the American Heritage Dictionary. Now let me tell you something. It's false. If you have an American Heritage Dictionary, I encourage you to rip out this page. Because this statement is absolutely, unequivocally false. An abortion is not necessarily the expulsion of an embryo, of a fetus, of a baby that is incapable of survival outside of the womb. That is necessarily false. And I am revolted by the fact that one of our leading dictionaries in the first entry, the first entry, the first definition of the word, that they would add this. What it tells me is that this dictionary has a political bias to it on this issue and is not approaching the issue from an honest and intellectual perspective. How many late-term abortions might there be at 30, 35, even 39 weeks in which a baby could have survived? I would, 
I just I couldn't believe when I read that. Is abortion a problem? Well, let's, let's figure that out. There are 3,500 abortions per day in the United States of America. 3,500. There are 1.3 million per year. And since Roe v. Wade was, uh, was established as law in 1973, 40 million abortions, 40 million lives have been lost. I think it's a, I think it's a problem. Some might call it a, a holocaust. This is a huge issue. A tremendous issue. These are staggering figures. I'm throwing out definitions. I'm throwing out figures. But does the Bible have anything to say about it? Does the Bible have anything to say about the issue of abortion? Well, in particular, what I want to look today is I want to answer the question, what does the Bible say about the unborn? Because if if we can determine what the Bible says about the unborn child, then we can probably make a pretty fair judgment on what the Bible would have to say about the issue of abortion. So we're going to look together today at this question very significantly. We're going to spend a lot of time in it. And this is a topical study. We're not going to take, uh, we're not going to dive deep into Scripture passages. We're going to do more of a survey. I encourage you to take these passages home with you. Consider them on your own as we go through this. But on your outlines, as we begin, let's answer the question, what does the Bible teach about the unborn? And the first issue is this. God is personally, personally interacting with us from the womb to birth and to old age. God is personally interacting with us from the womb to birth and to old age. Take a look at Isaiah 46. It says this. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been upheld by me from birth, who have been carried from the womb, even to your old age. I am He, God says, and even to your gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. Even I will carry and will deliver you. This is God speaking to Israel, speaking to His children suggesting that He has been a part of every moment of their lives from conception to birth to old age. He's personally interacting with us throughout those stages. Secondly, God is at work informing the baby in its mother's womb. And here's a precious, precious passage. I encourage you to turn there. And if it's not highlighted, make sure it's highlighted, underlined in your Bible. Psalm 139 says this, David says, For you formed my inward parts. You, God, covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very, very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest places of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book... They all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there was none of them. God is at work informing the baby in its mother's womb. But also, secondly, did you notice the end? God has plans for the unborn. Number three, God has plans for the unborn. Not only is, he, is David expressing that God is shaping him and molding him in his mother's womb at, at, at the time of his birth, God was intimately involved in that but that God had plans. He had plans before any of that for you, for David. 
He's thinking about you. Setting out your life. He had plans for you. In correspondence with that, number four, prior to our birth, God knows us and sets us apart for His purposes. He knows us and sets us apart for His purposes. Jeremiah 1.5, God speaks to Jeremiah and says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you to be a prophet to the nations. This is to Jeremiah in specific, but the principle applies. God knows he knows us before we're born. He has plans for us. He sets us apart, sanctifies. Let's go on to a fifth, and this is a peculiar one. You'll wonder at the start why I'm bringing it up. But fifth, fifthly, the unborn are personal sinners from conception. The unborn are personal sinners from conception. You say, okay, what's, what's the point? Well, let's read Psalm 51 and we'll get to the point. Psalm 51, David says this, For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I, David, was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. That phrase at the end, in sin my mother conceived me, it's not suggesting that, that David is talking about his mother's sin. No, the whole passage is in relationship to David's sin. David's confessing his sin before God. And he's saying, I was even brought forth in iniquity. I was so sinful. And from conception in the womb of my mother, I was in sin. If, uh, if Paul were bringing this up, he would speak about the sin that we've all inherited in Adam. And that even from conception, even from the very time of our birth, we are personally sinners. What bearing might that truth have on what we know about the unborn? What bearing might that truth that from conception we are personally sinners, what bearing might that have? What might it say about the unborn? Randy Alcorn, and I... I didn't put this quote up, up, but listen to this. It's just one sentence. He says this, Morality can only be ascribed to a person. Morality can only be ascribed to a person. What does he mean by that? He means that inanimate, lifeless, blobs, those things can't sin. If something does not have life, if something is inanimate, if it is lifeless, if it is just a blob, as some might say the, the embryo is in the mother's womb, uh, a mass of tissue, nothing more, if it is that, then this statement by David wouldn't be in our Scriptures. Because morality is only ascribed to a person. Only humans, only persons sin. And David is confessing here that I was a personal sinner from conception. That is a significant statement that tells us that David from conception was a human person. 
And he didn't have to wait until he came through the birth canal to be given those rights. Sixth, and finally for our purposes right now, the Old Testament law prescribed the law of retribution upon those who hurt or killed the unborn. This is significant. This is a huge one, folks. There's one scripture passage I'd have you turn to about the issue of abortion. It would be this one. The Old Testament law prescribed the law of retribution upon those who hurt or killed the unborn. Turn to Exodus uh, Exodus chapter 21. It's uh, behind you in the screen, but you may also want to turn there and take some notes on this one. Exodus 21, 22 to 25 says this, If men fight, if men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband imposes upon him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if any harm follows... Then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. This is a significant text in the Old Testament law. Some of your Bible translations, few, but some, will, in lieu of the word give birth prematurely, will give the word miscarry. Uh, Some Bible translations, although they're becoming few and farther between, uh, they give the word that if men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she miscarries, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished accordingly. Well, what is by nature a miscarriage? It's what? What is a miscarriage? Okay, it's when the, the baby is prematurely delivered unto Miscarriage necessarily includes death. Let me say that again. A miscarriage necessarily includes death. In Hebrew, the phrase used to describe gives birth prematurely does not necessarily include death. In fact, the combination of the noun and the verb in this phrase In Hebrew, the use of the verb in particular is used over 1,000 times in the Old Testament. The verb for bringing forth or for bearing children or for giving birth is used over 1,000 times in the Old Testament. And you know how many times it's used to to refer to miscarriage? Once. Once. If you wanted to turn there, you could look at Numbers 12.12. And the one time this word is used to describe a miscarriage, out of over a thousand times, only one describes a miscarriage. So when we approach this text with this Hebrew verb in mind, what might we expect of this premature birth? Should we automatically infer that death has incurred? No. In fact, the passage goes on to talk about, hey, there might be harm and there might not be harm. And if there's harm, there's going to be a fine. Or there's going to be, or there's going to be depending on the, on the level of harm, if it goes so far as to death, there's going to be life for life ascribed to this. Gleason Archer writes that there's no ambiguity here. This is what he says, an uh, Old Testament scholar. He says, there's no ambiguity here, whatever. What is required is that if there should be an injury, 
either to the mother or to her children. The injury shall be avenged by a like injury to the assailant. And if it involves the life of the premature baby, then the assailant shall pay with it for his, shall pay for it with his life. There is no second class status attached to the fetus under this rule. It's a powerful passage, friends. It's a powerful passage. In review, six issues we've looked at from the biblical perspective of the unborn. First, God is personally interacting with us from the womb to birth and to old age. God is at work in forming the baby in its mother's womb. God has plans for the unborn. Prior to our birth, God knows us and sets us apart for His purposes. The unborn are personal sinners from conception, and that means they're persons. The Old Testament law prescribed the law of retribution upon those who hurt or killed the unborn. These are some, these are some powerful arguments. Powerful arguments of the value of the unborn person. And some of you might say, well, that's, that's fine. I, uh, I recognize the biblical argument. I accept the biblical argument. But I have a lot of friends who don't accept the biblical arguments. I have a lot of friends who, who, uh, who don't believe in the Bible. And if I were to turn to all of these passages, it might mean something to them, but it wouldn't mean a lot. How can I deal? How can I deal with those who who wouldn't listen to these arguments? How can I approach a family member, a co-worker, a friend who, if I were to give them these six issues, they would say, well, that's fine, but that's your faith. That's your faith, and uh, you know, I've got other reasons. Well, that's, that's something we have to deal with, friends. That's something we need to be prepared to answer. And right now, I want to Consider a few, not all, a few common arguments, common arguments in favor of abortion. And the reason I want to bring this up is because these are the arguments that you're going to hear. These are the arguments you're going to hear from those who don't accept the Bible. These are the arguments you're going to hear from those who, who might say, well, that's fine over here, but what about this, 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 and this? And I want to bring up five arguments in particular, and, and this is not comprehensive but five in particular that should be helpful to us as we dialogue, as we consider with others the truth of this matter, not just from a biblical perspective, but from a common sense and logical perspective, from a moral perspective. First, have you ever heard the argument that the baby is not fully formed? It's not fully formed, they might say. It's not fully developed. And if it's not fully developed, then it's, then it's not worth bringing into this, this, this world. It's, it's of no value. It has no human rights. It's not a, it's not a person. It's not a human being. It's just it's a, it's a fetus. It's not developed. Uh, I need to mention that uh, some of the arguments that I'm hearing and some of the answers that I'm giving is in large part, I credit these answers, in large part, to a ministry by the name of Stand to Reason. Go ahead and write that down. Stand to Reason. S-T-R dot O-R-G. And Stand to Reason is a Christian apologetics ministry. A man by the name of Greg Kokel leads it. He's an incredible, incredible Christian apologist. A defender of the faith. Someone who thinks clearly and knows that he can't always give a Bible answer to people out there. 
And so he instead brings up philosophical arguments. He brings up other arguments that we can take with us as an opportunity to share with those who might believe in this way. And so to the question, it's not fully developed. What might we say to this person? What might we tell them? Well, Kokel suggests, he says, well, you know, hey, adults are more developed than toddlers, aren't they? You know, grown-ups, we're more developed than those little toddlers. Does that make grown-ups more valuable than a toddler? What about disabled persons? seems to me that a disabled person is uh, underdeveloped in some way, shape, or form, right? Especially, particularly those who, who have come from the womb disabled. Maybe they've got a bad leg or a bad arm or some other kind of physical defect. They're not fully developed in the way that our culture might, might want them to be, in, in, in the way we might think of as, as a perfectly developed human being. Does that mean that that developmentally challenged person is of less value than someone who does not have a physical defect? Of course not. So the issue of development is irrelevant. The issue of development is irrelevant. It doesn't matter whether someone's big or small or fully developed or partially developed. They're valuable. They're valuable. A second argument you might hear. It's not self-sufficient. It can't live in our world yet. It's not self-sufficient. It's not independent. It can't live on its own. So we can have an abortion because, hey, if, if, if something can't live on its own, if something can't be self-sufficient, then it's, it's okay to let it go. Right? No. My response to this outside of uh, standard reasons arguments, is, hey, you know, the vast majority of pregnancies, for, excuse me, for the, for the vast majority of a pregnancy, it is true, for the vast majority of the pregnancy, that a child in its mother's womb cannot survive outside of that womb. Uh, we, we have heard stories of babies as young as 22 weeks. Uh, some of you may have heard earlier, 22 weeks where they survived outside the womb, but that is certainly an anomaly. Usually it's, it's 30, more say, for 35 weeks before a doctor can say with, with some certainty, with some confidence, that a baby can survive outside the mother's womb. So for the vast majority, this statement is somewhat correct. It's not self-sufficient. But uh, Coco offers this argument. He says, uh, he says ask, the, ask the person in favor of abortion this question. How long can you breathe underwater? How long can I breathe underwater? Well, uh, about one swallow's worth, right? That's how long I can breathe underwater. And he goes on to say, the, the baby in its mother's womb is surrounded by amniotic fluid, which it breathes in and out of its developing lungs 24 hours a day. And he says, can you do that? No, I can't do that. I can't breathe fluid in and out of my lungs 24 hours a day. In fact, I can't breathe fluid for very long at all. Well, if you can't survive in the world of the unborn, why is it a requirement that the unborn be able to survive independently in your world? If you can't survive in their world, which we cannot, why is it a requirement that the unborn be able to survive in our world? 
about another example? You're at a pool, and you're the last one to leave. And as you're about to leave the community pool, you hear a splash. You look back, and sure enough, there was one helpless child left in the pool. And that child is, uh, has jumped in the deep end and is going to drown. The child can't swim. You're the last one. Last one there. The child is incapable by self-sufficiency to save himself. He's incapable of independently remedying his situation. He is going to drown if you don't save him. Do you jump in the pool? Of course you do. Of course you do. Why? Because self-sufficiency is not adequate justification for letting a human being die. It's not self-sufficient, so what? If there was a helpless child in a pool, every single one of us would jump in to save it. If they were utterly dependent on us, if they had no means to save themselves, not self-sufficient, not independent, couldn't live without someone else's help, would we go in and save them in that pool? You bet we would. We wouldn't even hesitate. And so this issue, friends, the issue of self-sufficiency is not adequate justification for abortion. Now, I've given you two, but here are some weightier ones. And these are, the, these are the tougher ones to deal with. Another issue. What about rape or incest? Uh, it's, it's a fact that approximately 1% of all abortions are due to rape. 1%. Um, and I mentioned earlier that, that on this issue of abortion, you know, we, need to, we need to exercise great uh, discretion and care with how we talk about this issue. And we need to recognize as we talk about the issue of rape or incest that these are sins that are awful and reprehensible. They're morally wrong. And we we loathe these sins when we hear about them. When someone experiences something like this. We can't stand it. We stand up against it. But friends, we cannot let our emotional attachment, our emotional repulsion to an issue such as rape or incest keep us from thinking clearly and thinking biblically about what we should do with someone's pregnancy who has been raped or had incest occur occur on them. I'm reminded of the phrase that two wrongs don't make a right. Two wrongs don't make a right. A rape does not justify an abortion. Incest does not justify an abortion. While the perpetrator of the crime is detestable and evil. The child within the woman is innocent and precious in the sight of God. And so while this is a very, very difficult and emotionally filled issue, I make the case from a strictly biblical perspective that if we're going to say that abortion is wrong, it needs to be wrong in the case of rape and incest as well. And you might say, well, that's, that's just... That's awful. You're, cut, you're, you're allowing a, a, a woman to go through nine months of terror after she's already experienced terror. And my response to that, uh, again, from a heart that grieves, is to say, terminating the pregnancy is not going to take away the terror of that experience. 
It's not. Finding, taking vengeance, eliminating the issue in a way or shape or form, by ending the pregnancy, we should never think that such an action is going to rid, rid the woman or, or rid her family or, or rid the, the pain of that experience. It's not. Ending the pregnancy will not end the pain of rape or incest. And so we break for the person who has had this happen upon them. But we counsel them in love. This is a precious and innocent child. This is a precious and innocent child. And two wrongs don't make a right. I would encourage in these kinds of situations, uh, oftentimes consider, consider adoption. Consider, uh, consider other methods if, if the pain is so great, and it, and it is. Consider other methods for dealing with the hurt of an experience such as that. Two more issues. Fourthly, what if the baby has physical or cognitive abnormalities? Some would argue, wouldn't it be more merciful to abort the baby than to bring them into this world with significant physical or cognitive disadvantages? I've heard this argument before. In fact, Margaret Sanger, the, uh, the founder of Planned Parenthood, she said the most merciful thing a large family can do is, is kill, is kill the, the child who is the most disadvantaged. This is a quote of Margaret Sanger, founder of Planned Parenthood. The most merciful thing a family can do is kill its most disadvantaged child. That's a, that's a crazy statement. That's a wicked and deplorable statement. And as we talked about development earlier, the principles of the issue of development apply here. It is not merciful. It is not merciful to terminate a life to save them some, so, some social shame that they might incur later on in their life. It is not acceptable from a biblical perspective to terminate a life just because you think, well, they're going to have such challenges though. Well, you know, they have physical abnormalities. They have cognitive abnormalities. They're not going to be able to function in society like the rest of us. You know what? That's not good enough. That's not good enough. We need, we must value all human life, both fully developed, whatever that means, we all have our abnormalities, and, un and underdeveloped. All human life is of critical importance and of value to God. That issue is not good enough. Fifth and finally, you've heard it before, the woman has a right to choose. The woman has a right to choose. And this issue does uh, stem from the issue of rights. You know, we, I talk a lot about rights. And I, I mentioned before many times uh, as we go through the Gospels that Jesus is constantly saying, stop talking about your rights. Stop talking about what you're owed, what you're, what you're entitled to. Stop talking about your rights, Jesus says. Over and over again, that is a huge theme of the Gospels. A huge theme of the Gospels. A woman has the right to choose. Have you ever noticed that that statement is... Uh, Actually, somewhat of an incomplete sentence. It is a complete sentence, but from a grammatical perspective. But from a moral perspective, it's an incomplete sentence. A woman has the right to choose. Choose what? Choose what? 
Does she have a right to choose what she's going to wear in the morning? Of course. Does she have a right to choose what she's going to eat? Of course. Does she have a right to choose to murder a life within her? No. Of course not. That is not a right we afford to people. That is not something that we offer to people as an option. This issue of of a woman's right, it needs to be brought back to the issue of, but what, what is the choice? Like anyone who chooses, there are consequences with choices. When we choose to perpetuate a crime, we're going to pay the penalty of that crime. And so if we're just going to say a woman has the right to choose, we need to ask the question, well, what is she choosing? And are there consequences to that choice? Should there be moral consequences to this choice? Should she even have this right? Before we move on... uh, I do want to mention one thing, and it's, it's, uh, it's a sad, sad thing to mention. In answer to the question, is there any reason to abort? Is there any reason to have an abortion? Um, sadly, there, from a medical perspective, and I believe from a moral perspective, there is one reason to have an abortion. There is one. It's an issue called uh, ectopic pregnancy. You may have heard of it. Ectopic pregnancy is a situation in which the embryo, baby comes together and is found growing inside of a place called the fallopian tube within the mother. As it's fallen into this tube, as the baby begins to develop, this tube is particularly sensitive to the mother, her life. And if this tube were to rupture, if it were to be enlarged, which it would in the course of pregnancy, if this tube were to burst, it would kill not only the mother, but it would kill the child. This is a undeniable medical fact. It's a medical reality. It's a scientific fact. If a baby is brought to full term in an ectopic pregnancy, it will kill both the mother and the child. And I say full term, that's, that's a misnomer. It will, not be brought, it will not come to full term. It will come to a period of weeks... And the fallopian tube will burst and both will die. But I want to say this. The reason abortion is justified, I believe, from a biblical perspective in this manner is because, number one, there is no alternative. We have no medical technology that allows us to take that precious life and insert it into the proper place in the woman's womb. We don't have that technology today. Will we one day? I I think we might. What a blessing that would be. But secondly, I think God shows grace and God understands and God recognizes that to lose both mother and child is all the more tragic than to just lose the child who unfortunately has fallen into that, into that place of the body, the place of the womb. I think that God understands this. He recognizes that uh, two deaths far worse than one. And so, while this situation happens in a minuscule amount of pregnancies, and I mean a minuscule amount, we're talking less than, than like 0.1% of pregnancies have this situation occur. But when they do, I would give pastoral counsel based on the Word, based on what I understand of God, that it's okay. God would rather you continue your life than for you and bo- both you and your child to die.
one last issue from the Scriptures. And then I want to cover a few more things today. We've talked about these six items uh, from a biblical perspective. But there's a seventh that I wanted to add, and it is this. The forming of human life is beyond our full comprehension. The forming of human life is beyond our full comprehension. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon says this. He says, As you do not know what is the way of the wind, or how the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child, so you do not know the works of God who makes, who makes everything. It's a mystery. There's a mysterious component to birth. We don't have full knowledge of this process. We don't totally understand what it's like. Ecclesiastes 11.5 says that the creation of human life is beyond our comprehension. It's mysterious. Too wonderful for us to understand. And not long ago, I heard a, 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 a politician espouse this view. In a manner of speaking, I should say. In a manner of speaking, this view was espoused. This idea of mystery and, wow, I don't fully comprehend it. Um, this is what was said uh, to the question, um, when does a baby get human rights? This is what was said uh, by a politician. I don't know when a baby gets human rights. Now, you know what? Some of you might say, well, that's, that's not a good enough statement. You know what? I'm thrilled when I see a statement like this. I'm thrilled. And I'll tell you why I'm thrilled. When I see a statement like this from a politician or a judge or a leader in a nation, you know what it tells me? You know, what it, you know what it gives me? It gives me hope that this person, not having all the knowledge, not having all the answers, admitting that there's a mysterious component to this issue, that there's something that's beyond our comprehension, it gives me hope when they say things like this, that when in doubt, they will err on the side of caution. It gives me hope that when in doubt, they will err on the side of caution. Right? Wouldn't that be a, a logical consequence of this statement? Any reasonable person who does not know when life begins should obviously err on the side of caution when it comes to the issue of abortion. If they don't know when a baby gets human rights, then we might fully expect them to refrain from supporting abortion. Am I wrong? No. We might fully expect that they would err on the side of caution and not support abortion. And yet, 30 seconds later, the same politician made another statement. And this is what was said. I believe a woman has the right to an abortion. How is anyone morally justified in holding these two statements? How is anyone morally justified in holding these two statements? If someone does not know, if they admit they don't know, when a baby gets human rights, are they not morally compelled to refrain from taking a pro-choice position on abortion until they figure out when a baby gets human rights? Are they not morally compelled 
to err on the side of caution before rendering judgment on the issue of abortion? I think so. I think that's so reasonable. So obvious. I don't need to be a Christian to think that. I need to be an intellectually honest person. These two statements are incompatible. And they mean one of two things. Either number one, either number one, their claim to ignorance over when a baby gets human rights is a lie. Either they're lying about that first statement. Or number two, they don't care that abortion might possibly be murder if in fact the baby does have human rights. That's what it means. You hold those two statements at the top of that screen and one of the two statements below apply to that person. I don't know which one. But it grieves me that anyone, politician, judge, anyone, would make these statements simultaneously. Think of, uh, think of the worker outside the home. He says, Sir, we've, uh, before we tint your house, and before we tint your house and pump in poisonous gas to destroy all the termites, can you confirm whether all of your family members are out of the home? And the dad says, I think so. Fair enough, sir. Hit the gas. Huh? What? Are you kidding? Is I think so a good enough answer? No. It's not a good enough answer. If I don't know when a baby gets human rights, I should never take a pro-choice position. Ever. That's not a Christian perspective. That's an intellectually and morally honest perspective. Period. We talked a lot about the spiritual watchmen of Israel. We talked a lot about them standing up on the wall, looking for danger outside and within. And why did they blow the trumpet from last week? We learned this. They blew the trumpet for two reasons. Number one, to call sinners to repentance, that they might avoid the judgment of God. And number two, this is significant, to keep their own conscience clean before God, that God would not judge them for watching sin abound and doing nothing about it. Read Ezekiel 33. Clear as a bell. In other words, do whatever is in your power to rescue those in danger of death, in danger of sin, in danger of evil. And if we have knowledge of someone in peril and we do not act to rescue them, we will be judged for inaction and apathy. We will be judged for inaction and apathy. Psalm 82, 3 and 4 says this, Defend the poor and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and the needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. What can we do? What can we do in the face of abortion, the issue of abortion in life? First, I've, we mentioned before that we're going to pray and fast on Sunday, November the 2nd. We're going to pray and fast. And friends, uh, I'm reminded that Israel, they grieved and they repented of national travesties that befell them. And like, likewise, let us grieve and repent of the abortion atrocities that befall in our nation. You say, well, I haven't had an abortion. You know what? The Israelites repented of the sins of their nation. They did that time and time again. 
time and time again, though they themselves might personally not have committed a particular sin, they wept before God and they said, God, forgive us. Forgive our nation. Forgive us for this great travesty. And I'm asking us to, to let that be a component of our prayer and fasting on Sunday the 2nd. I, 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 for one, I have not grieved this issue. Um, I have not... I have not come to grips with this issue. I spent time this week... Um, I spent time on um, some pro-life websites. I spent time on one particular website in which they uh, graphically showed what, what it looks like to have an abortion. Um, and I, I wept. I wept. And I, I want us to come to grips with this. This is huge. You should be affected by this issue. You should grieve. We should come before God and on behalf of our nation just repent of this and do whatever is in our power. Secondly, defend the unborn, period. Defend the unborn. That is our duty. That means becoming more, <clears throat> becoming more knowledgeable in both biblical and non-biblical pro-life arguments so that we can help persuade others of God's truth. Some of the things I've given are helpful. Not all of it. Go on other you know, str.org, other websites that get you acquainted with this issue. So important. Moreover, I would say vote for politicians and judges who value the unborn as God does. Is abortion alone justification for voting for a candidate? I, I'm not going to answer that question. You need to answer that question. But it seems to me, it seems to me that God is critically, critically concerned with this issue. And that needs to affect our politics. That needs to affect our life. That needs to affect how we do things. Finally, love those who are considering an abortion and those who have already undergone one. I say to the mother who has aborted a child, we need to remind them of forgiveness in Christ. It's okay. God forgives you. And we love you. And we're here to support you. And many others have sinned in other ways. Your sin is no, no worse than mine. Secondly, to the mother considering an abortion, we've got to lovingly intervene. And I say three things. First, show how God values the unborn in His Word. Show them that. Secondly, refer her to pastoral help or birth choice to Mission Viejo. You say birth choice. That sounds like a pro-choice. No, it's not. Birth choice is right up the road. It's a half mile away. It's right across the street from Saddleback College. I called them on Friday. The reason I called them is because a month ago, I was at a pastor's meeting and and a woman from Birth Choice, a Christian uh, pro-life ministry, they came and they said, we need a pastor on our board. We need a pastor to serve on our board and help us with a few decisions uh, you know, on a monthly basis. And uh, the, all the pastors I was gathered with, none of them came forward. Now, they're busy, and, and I'm busy. We're all busy. Uh, in the last three weeks, I've been immensely convicted by that. And I called them on Friday and said, if, if, if you need me, I'm, I'm here to serve in that capacity. I will, I will be on your board. I'm a young pastor. I don't know much. But I'll be on your board if, if you need me to. Go to that organization and serve. Offer your help. Offer your support. And finally, offer to adopt. If you know of someone who's uh, considering an abortion, I want you to look them in the eye and say, I will, I will take your child. 
I mean that. I absolutely mean that. And I say to anyone here, that anyone I meet, that says, I'm thinking of having an abortion, my wife and I, we will not hesitate. We will say unequivocally, please have the baby. We'll take him. We'll take him. I don't care how many kids we have. We'll take him. Offer to adopt. Let's break for what God's heart breaks for. Let's grieve for what God's heart grieves for. Let's sound the alarm as watchmen. Let's be watchmen who never hold our peace on the issue of abortion in life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I know we don't understand the gravity of this issue. I know that that, uh, oftentimes it's not of great consequence to us. It's not of great importance. Father, we're sorry. We're sorry that uh, at times we overlook this. Father, help us to grieve as you grieve, to value what you value. The issue of abortion, Lord, is, is, is huge. You value the unborn child. And so we will too. Show us ways to carry this out. Show us ways to protect the city from evil, from danger. May we be speaking the truth in love, showing the way out of this atrocity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.